Section 50 of A History of Our Own Times, Volume 4 by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 67 The Literature of the Reign, Second Survey, Part 4. The fiction of this second period has one really great name and one only. The author of Adam Bede and the Mill on the Floss stands on a literary level with Dickens and Thackeray and Charlotte Bronte. George Eliot, as this author chooses to call herself, is undoubtedly a great writer merely as a writer. Her literary career began as a translator and an essayist. Her tastes seemed then to lead her wholly into the somewhat barren fields where German metaphysics endeavor to come to the relief or the confusion of German theology. She became a contributor to the Westminster Review. Then she became its assistant editor, and worked assiduously for it under the direction of Dr. John Chapman, the editor. She had mastered many sciences as well as literatures. Probably no other novel writer since novel writing became a business ever possessed anything like her scientific knowledge. Unfortunately, her scientific knowledge over-informed her later novels and made them oppressive to readers who longed for the early freshness of Adam Bede. George Eliot does not seem to have found out, until she had passed what is conventionally regarded as the age of romance, that she had in her, high above all other gifts, the faculty of the novelist. When an author who is not very young makes a great hit at last, we soon begin to learn that he had already made many attempts in the same direction, and his publishers find an eager demand for the stories and sketches which, when they first appeared, utterly failed to attract attention. But it does not seem that Miss Marian Evans, as she then was, ever published anything in the way of fiction previous to the series of sketches which appeared in Blackwood's magazine and were called Scenes of Clerical Life. These sketches attracted considerable attention and were much admired, but not many people probably saw in them the capacity which produced Adam Bede and Romola. With the publication of Adam Bede came a complete triumph. The author was elevated at once, and by acclamation, to the highest rank among living novelists. In one of the first numbers of the Cornhill magazine, Thackeray, in a gossiping paragraph about novelists of the day, whom he mentioned alphabetically and by their initials, spoke of E as a star of the first magnitude just risen on the horizon. Nothing is much rarer than the union of the scientific and the literary or artistic temperaments. So rare is it that the exceptional, the almost solitary instance of Goethe comes up at once, distinct and striking to the mind. English novelists are even less likely to have anything of a scientific taste than French or German. Dickens knew nothing of science, and had indeed as little knowledge of any kind, save that which is derived from observation, as any respectable Englishman could well have. Thackeray was a man of varied reading, versed in the lighter literature of several languages, and strongly imbued with artistic tastes. But he had no care for science, and knew of it only what every one has to learn at school. Lord Lytton's science was a mere sham. Charlotte Bronte was genius in ignorance. George Eliot is genius in culture. Had she never written a page of fiction, 
she must have been regarded with admiration by all who knew her as a woman of deep thought and of a varied knowledge such as men complacently believe to be the possession only of men it was not this however which made her a great novelist her eyes were not turned inwards or kept down in metaphysical contemplation she studied the living world around her she had an eye for external things keen almost as that of dickens or balzac george eliot is the only novelist who can paint such english people as the poisers and the tullivers just as they are she looks into the very souls of such people she tracks out their slow peculiar mental processes she reproduces them fresh and firm from very life mere realism mere photographing even from the life is not in art a great triumph but george eliot can make her dullest people interesting and dramatically effective she can paint two dull people with quite different ways of dullness a dull man and a dull woman for example and the reader is astonished to find how utterly distinct the two kinds of stupidity are and how intensely amusing both can be made there are two pedantic pompous dull advocates in mr browning's the ring and the book how distinct they are how different how unlike and how true are the two portraits but then it must be owned that the poet sometimes allows his pedants to be as tiresome as they would be in real life if each successively held a weary listener by the button george eliot is not guilty of any such artistic fault no one wants to be rid of mrs poyser or aunt glegg or the prattling florentines and romola there never was or could be a mark tapley or a sam weller we put up with these impossibilities and delight in them because they are so amusing and so full of fantastic humour but mrs poyser lives and every one knows an aunt glegg and poor mrs tulliver's cares and hopes and little fears and pitiful reasonings are animating hundreds of mrs tulliver's all over england george eliot has infused into the novel some elements it never had before and so thoroughly infused them that they blend with all the other materials and do not form anywhere a solid lump or mass distinguishable from the rest there are philosophical novels wilhelm meister for example which are weighed down and loaded with philosophy and which the world only admires in spite of the philosophy there are political novels lord beaconsfield's for instance which are only intelligible to those who make politics and political personalities a study and which viewed merely as stories would not be worth speaking about there are novels with a great direct purpose in them such as uncle tom's cabin or bleak house or mr charles reed's hard cash but these after all are only magnificent pamphlets splendidly illustrated diatribes the deep philosophical thought of george eliot's best novels quietly suffuses and illumines them everywhere there is no sermon here no lecture there no solid mass interposing between this incident and that no ponderous moral hung around the neck of this or that personage the reader feels that he is under the spell of one who is not merely a great story-teller but one who is also a deep thinker mr antony trollope carries to its utmost limit the realism begun by thackeray 
he has none of thackeray's genius none of his fancy or feeling none of his genuine creative power he can describe with minute photographic faithfulness the ways the talk and sometimes even the emotions of a belgravian family of a nobleman's country house or the womankind of a dean in a cathedral town he does not trouble himself with passion or deep pathos although he has got as far as to describe very touchingly the mental pains of a pretty girl thrown over by her lover and has suggested with some genuine power the blended emotion half agony of sorrow half sense of relief experienced by an elderly clergyman on the death of a shrewish wife it was natural that after the public had had a long succession of mr trollope's novels there should come a ready welcome for the school of fiction which was called the sensational of this school mr wilkie collins headed one class and miss braddon the other miss braddon dealt in what we may call simple straightforward murders and bigamies and such like material mr collins made his crimes always of an enigmatic nature and compelled the reader to puzzle them out as if they were morbid conundrums mr trollope however continued to have his clientele all the time that the sensational school in its various classes or branches was flourishing and fading mr trollope's readers may have turned away for a moment to hear what became of the lady who dropped her husband down the well or to guess at the secret of the mysterious woman in white but they soon turned loyally back to follow the gentle fortunes of lily dale and to hear what was going on in the household of frumley parsonage and under the stately roof of the duke of omnium mr charles reed with all his imperfections as an artist belongs to a higher order than mr trollope who is so much more thoroughly a master of his own narrower art peg woofington and christie johnston the former published so long ago as eighteen fifty two seem almost perfect in their symmetry and beauty the cloister and the hearth might well nigh have persuaded a reader that a new walter scott was about to arise on the horizon of our literature in mr reed's more recent works however the author began to devote himself to the illustration of some social or legal grievance calling for reform and people came to understand that a new branch of the art of novel-writing was in process of development the special gift of which was to convert a parliamentary blue-book into a work of fiction the treatment of criminals in prison and in far-off penal settlements the manner in which patients are dealt with in private lunatic asylums became the main subject and backbone of the new style of novel instead of the misunderstandings of lovers the trials of honest poverty or the struggles for ascendancy in the fashionable circles of belgravia mr reed may claim the merit of standing alone in work of this kind he can make a blue book live and yet be a blue book still he takes the hard and naked facts as he finds them in some newspaper or in the report of some parliamentary commission and he so fuses them into the material whereof his romance is to be made up that it would require a chemical analysis to separate the fiction from the reality the reader is not conscious that he is going through the boiled-down contents of a blue book he has no aggrieved sense of being entrapped into the dry details of some harassing social question the reality reads like romance 
the romance lives like reality no author ever indulged in a fairer piece of self-glorification than that contained in the last sentence of put yourself in his place i have taken says mr reed a few undeniable truths out of many and have laboured to make my readers realise those appalling facts of the day which most men know but not one in a thousand comprehends and not one in a hundred thousand realises until fiction which whatever you may have been told to the contrary is the highest widest noblest and greatest of all the arts comes to his aid studies penetrates digests the hard facts of chronicles and blue books and makes the dry bones live distinct peculiar and lonely is the place in fiction held by mr george meredith the author of the ordeal of richard feverell beecham's career the egoist and other novels mr meredith has been more than once described as a prose browning he has indeed much of mr browning's obscurity of style not caused by any obscurity of thought but rather by a certain perverse indifference on the part of the artist to the business of making his meaning as clear to others as it is to himself he has a good deal of mr browning's peculiar kind of grim saturnine humour not the humour that bubbles and sparkles the humour that makes men laugh even while it sometimes draws tears to the eyes he lacks the novelist's first charm the power of telling a story well but despite these defects he is unquestionably one of the most remarkable of all the modern novelists short of the very greatest there are times when the reader is inclined to wonder how with so many great gifts he has failed to become a great novelist the story called beecham's career which probably not one in every thousand novel readers has even opened seems to us to have only narrowly missed being one of the great romances of the age of queen victoria it is full of beauty of power of pathos some of its characters are so drawn that they not merely stand out as if in life before us but they enable us to enter into all their thoughts and anticipate all their purposes we can conjecture beforehand what they will do in a given condition of things just as we can tell how some friend of our own is likely to act when we hear what the circumstances are under which he is called upon to take a decision this story too is not overladen as others of mr meredith's unluckily are by epigram and antithesis by curiosities of phrase which it is difficult to follow and conceits which rather dazzle the eyes of the reader than light up the page if mr meredith's novels were to be examined according to their intellectual worth they would deserve and demand a much fuller analysis than has been attempted here but in these pages we are looking at the literature of the time from the chronicler's rather than the critic's point of view we tell that a certain soldier won a battle or statesman gained a political victory although we may ourselves be of opinion that the victory was better deserved on the other side in the same spirit we record the fact that mr meredith has not yet succeeded in gaining that place in fiction which our own judgment of his capacity would say that he is surely well qualified to attain mr blackmore's lorna doone seems to us on the whole the best novel of the second class produced in england in our time that is to say we rank it distinctly below the great novels of dickens and thackeray and charlotte bronte and george eliot but above any novel produced by any writer short of these 
and above the inferior works of these great artists themselves mr william black is the head of a school of fiction which he himself called into existence scottish scenery and scottish character alternating with certain phases of london life are the field in which he works and in which he has no rival he has not as yet shown himself great in passion or in pathos the deeper emotions of the human heart the sterner phases of human life he has apparently not often cared to touch but in his own province somewhat narrow though that be his art approaches to perfection he can paint not merely scenery but even atmosphere with a delicacy and strength of touch which in themselves constitute an art mr hardy has done something of the same for certain english counties that mr black has done for scotland he is occasionally stronger than mr black but he has not his subtle sweetness charm and tender grace and he is far less equal far less surely master of his own craft a word must be said of the delicate porcelain of miss thackeray's work in fiction her tender gentle womanly stories nor should we fail to record the fact that mrs crack's john halifax gentleman was one of the literary successes of the day a style of novel peculiar to this age and very unlike that of miss thackeray or mrs crack deserves a word of mention that is the novel which records the lives the rompings the ambitions the flirtations and the sufferings of what we may call the roaring girl of the victorian age with tousled unkept hair disorderly dress occasionally dirty hands and lips bubbling over with perpetual slang this strange young woman has bounced into fiction she has always a true and tender heart under her somewhat uncouth appearance and manners when she falls in love she falls in love very intensely and although she may have had all manner of flirtations she generally clings to the one true passion and is not uncommonly found dying of a broken heart at the end of the novel perhaps the one merit about this kind of fiction when it is really honest and at its best is that it recognizes the fact that women are not a distinct angelic order of beings but that they have their strong passions and even their coarse desires like men such advantage as there may be in setting this fact plainly before the world on the authority of writers who are women themselves the school may claim to have it is not a high or refined or noble or in any way commendable school of fiction but at its best it is sincere at its worst and it very soon reached its worst it may be described as insufferable the fiction of this later period is like the poetry inferior to that of the period which we had to consider in our former survey it has more names but not such great names it would almost seem as if the present school of fiction is to borrow a phrase from french politics exhausting its mandate the sensation novel has had its day and its day was but an episode an interruption realism has now well-nigh done all it can its close details its trivial round of common cares and ambitions its petty trials and easy loves seem now at last to have spent their attractive power and to urge with their fading breath the need of some new departure for the novelist perhaps the one common want in the more modern novel may suggest the new source of supply perhaps in order to give a fresh life to our fiction 
it will have to be dipped once more in the old holy well of romance. End of section 50. Recording by Pamela Nagami, M.D., in Encino, California, in September of the year of the plague, 2020. End of a history of our own times from the accession of Queen Victoria to the general election of 1880, volume 4, by Justin McCarthy.